Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's time for August Listener Mail. That's right. Uh, Yeah, we almost forgot to to do another one of these, but we've been trying to do them more or less monthly because that – I mean, that's how much cool listener mail we get. I mean, we get a lot of just nice personal comments about how much people enjoy the show. And, you know, sometimes we read one of those or two of those just to give our, you know, ourselves a, a pat on the back. <laughs> but uh, but we do receive a lot of, uh, of, of, of really insightful uh, emails about content that we've covered, uh, you know, listeners sharing their take on particular topics, and, you know, occasionally pointing out something that we missed even. Yeah, you can only pat your own back so much before it starts to get sore. So maybe we should just dive straight into some of the fascinating and strange ideas that our listeners have sent us in reaction to recent episodes. Let's do it. What do you think about going back to the ye old ashen light. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the the strange light on the uh, dark side of Venus. You know, our mailbot Carney has, uh, has has seen these lights in person. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't hear this. So, well, so, he had a life before he was a humble mailbot. I mean, he was a space probe. Really? Yeah, not, not many people realize this. Uh, from from which space program? American? Soviet? What? Ooh, he's very hush-hush about that, especially given the, the current political climate. So he I'm not sure which side he was on. was a Bulgarian space probe. <laughs> That went to Venus, found the ashen light, came back, and it's been a cover-up ever since. Yeah, like he doesn't say much. But I know he's seen uh, or claims to have seen the ashen light. So one of the things we talked about in the ashen light episode was, uh, of course, the possibility. It seems like a very strong possibility that the reports of the lights on the dark side of Venus have just been observer error. You know, that nobody nobody was actually seeing anything, that it was just uh, imagination or artifacts of the technology used at the time and so forth. Yeah, it is kind of occurring at like the cutting edge of perception without any kind of uh, way to like photograph or record what is being seen. Right. But of course, part of the problem has been, well, you've got all these sightings. If you are going to assume people were really seeing something, what could it be? What could it have been? And I offered a crazy idea at the end of the episode. Well, what if uh, you actually do have organisms floating in the atmosphere of Venus? suspended in droplets in the atmosphere in the clouds and and they're actually bioluminescent or somehow reflecting or emitting light at different frequencies, maybe at times when they bloom. And this would explain the strange periodicity of the apparent ashen light sightings. Well, we heard from our listener, Michael, who said, Hello, my name is Michael, and I just started listening to the podcast. Three episodes in, and I definitely have more that I want to listen to. I teach science in 7th and 8th grade, and I love how much your podcast makes me explore different ideas. I'm writing in about your most recent podcast because you said something right at the end that I thought was so fascinating. You talked about what if the ashen light was the result of microorganisms in the atmosphere. Now, this is just total off-the-cuff thinking about what could be possible, but I feel like that's kind of exactly what your show is supposed to make you do. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. What if the light is a combination of both the solar bombardment and the microorganisms? My thought is this. Organisms living up in the atmosphere like that would obviously be exposed to more solar radiation. They would need to have a way to deal with the excess that they don't use. I'm assuming they would be photoautotrophs of some kind. What if their way of dealing with the excess energy would be to absorb it, the electrons would become excited, and then they would emit that light when the electrons went back to their ground state? I have no idea if this is possible because I'm pretty sure this is not how bioluminescence occurs on our planet, but let's assume that it is possible. 
If possible, then the ashen light could be the interaction of exponential microorganism growth that corresponds to extreme solar activity. With the high amounts of both microorganisms and solar activity, it may produce a light strong enough to be faintly visible to us from Earth. Having it be the interaction between two rare events would explain why this only happens infrequently and does not happen with any discernible pattern to us. Because even if we can analyze solar activity, we wouldn't know when that would line up with exponential microorganism growth. And after exponential growth, we have a period of severely decreased population since they hit their carrying capacity, which would mean that even if there was high solar radiation, it would not trigger the ashen light. This would also explain why the light does not appear to be green as is produced by the oxygen reactions. Again, pure conjecture, almost certainly incorrect, but wouldn't that be cool if astronomers had been seeing signs of life on Venus for hundreds of years and did not realize it? That would definitely blow my mind. Anyway, I'm excited to join your audience and most likely will write in every now and then since I'm a science teacher and it looks like your podcast is right up my alley. Now, uh, what he said there wouldn't it be uh, wouldn't it be interesting if they were if, if what they were looking at was really alien life and they didn't realize it? Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, you could say that well, some of these individuals were saying it was uh-huh. alien life. the The version of alien life they were imagining uh, was uh, was certainly not correct. Right. It was uh, who von Groythausen, right? Yeah. He was saying, uh, well, what it is is obviously the coronation of the new Venusian king. Yeah, it's all those fireworks they're throwing up over this uh, this you know, dynastic change that's occurring down there. But that's certainly not the case. Uh, but it would be interesting if, in a way, in a very small way, but a pivotal way, he was actually right. That would be a great vindication for, for von Groythausen. Also, Michael got back after uh, I responded and said he'd done a little more research on this and realized, quote, what I was talking about would be not uh, would not be bioluminescence, but actually biofluorescence, the ability to absorb and then emit light at different frequencies. I wasn't positive if there were organisms on Earth that could do this, but apparently there absolutely are. So yeah, this seems theoretically possible. I even found a paper about scientists looking into plants on Earth needing to protect themselves from increased UV radiation because of the thinning ozone layer, and it seemed like this is a possibility they were looking into. Uh, so yeah, thanks again for getting in touch, Michael. That That is a highly interesting speculative idea. I wonder if we already know things that could bat down this hypothesis, things already in evidence, or if uh, somebody would need to do any new observations or experiments to see if this uh, this kind of thing were possible. I don't know. Carney's very hush-hush on the whole situation, though. <laughs> Also, just another idea that came to us uh, from our listener Justin on Twitter. Uh, Justin wrote uh, a thought that came to his mind is what if the ashen light is Venus moving fast enough in relation to to the Earth to blue shift infrared light, so heat, into the visible spectrum? And I I thought that was an interesting question. I I don't have a way of evaluating that. My guess would be that blue shifted light from the infrared – would still, I mean, you could do that if it's moving fast enough. That's possible from the shorter wavelengths of thermal emission, but my guess would be probably just that it wouldn't be bright enough to see from Earth, even if it shifted into the visible spectrum. But I don't know for sure. That's that's another thing worth uh, checking with an expert about. All right. Well, I'm going to call Carney over here. He has some, uh, some more listener mail here for us, and it's uh, related to our recent episode on drinking coffee, more importantly, brewing coffee in microgravity, in orbit. Uh, specifically, uh, you know, aboard the uh, the ISS. 
Uh, so first I have to acknowledge uh, uh, Nathaniel wrote in, uh, listener Nathaniel wrote in and uh, pointed out that I referred to the ISS Presso machine as being a 400-pound machine as opposed to a 40-pound machine. Oh, okay. Well, so, that's an order of magnitude of difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but just about one zero. Uh, it, it didn't really affect the, the rest of the content of that episode, but we did put a, uh, we did tag that old episode for people who are listening to it for the first time. Um, we also uh, uh, heard from uh, a listener on Twitter uh, this is Twitter listener RP. RP wrote in and said, uh, listen this morning, great show as always. I don't drink coffee, so my question is, can I have my Mountain Dew in space? <laughs> Apart from all the bad stuff it does to me, curious about carbonated liquids in space. And so I thought this was an interesting question. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, not one we could do a whole episode on, but I, I looked into it a little bit, and I did find uh, a, a NASA, uh, NASA page about this. Uh, if you look up you know, NASA carbonated beverages in space, you'll find this as well. But the basic answer breaks down to this. So the bubbles of carbon dioxide in carbonated beverages, they aren't buoyant in a weightless environment. Oh. So they remain randomly distributed throughout the fluid even after you swallow it. This means that carbonated beverages, uh, including soft drinks and, of course, beers, uh, they, they may become a foamy mess, uh, NASA says, during space travel. Whoa, now this makes me think, do you burp in space? Hmm. I've never thought about this before. Now, bubbles from your digestive system of gas would seem to rise naturally through buoyancy so that you could burp. Ooh. But if you're in a, a microgravity environment or in zero-G – would bubbles rise to the top for you to burp? Huh. This is it's interesting. I don't know that I've ever read anything about it. Or if I did, it was overshadowed by all the content about pooping in space. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the NASA piece continues. It points out that uh, the carbonation in the soda will also not separate in microgravity. And in the absence of gravity, the carbon dioxide bubbles in carbonated beverages go through an astronaut's digestive system rather than being, yeah, rather than being belched out a, as on Earth. So that seems to lead that seems to lead uh, some weight to the idea that maybe astronauts don't belch, uh, and uh, anyway, they point out that this could cause adverse side effects as well. So, if you're going to have Mountain Dew in space, um, I would I would imagine it would have to be flat Mountain Dew. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah. Wow that that is a horrible thing to imagine. <laughs> but I guess it could still be cold or hot if you're a hot Mountain Dew enthusiast. A hot catheter of Mountain Dew just ready for you. <laughs> nothing nothing gets you invigorated to, to go fix that space probe. In your little urinal-shaped cup. Yes. <laughs> I think what we need to design is a machine for astronauts to burp with. It would somehow use momentum on the body. It would be called like kinetic burping. Mm. It would be kind of like that scene in uh, Willy Wonka with the, the fizzy lifting drink. Huh? Yeah. yeah. And, like centrifuge the burps out of you. <laughs> It's just another example of, of all the, the, the various uh, functions we take for granted uh, here on Earth in our, uh, our, our 1G of gravity. This comes to us from our listener Evan, and it's about space coffee. Evan says, recently I listened to Astronauts in Spaceships Getting Coffee, great episode, and I thought I'd write in to share some experiences that I had with an experiment testing a zero-G workaround designed for the ISS, particularly as it involves the use of centripetal force to create artificial gravity in ways that I don't think you've discussed before. Namely, rather than creating gravity for the entire space station or spacecraft by having the whole thing constantly revolve, instead you can create localized gravity within the station or craft by spinning platforms, etc., for specific purposes such as exercise. Robert, I think we did talk about that a little bit in our artificial gravity episode, didn't we? Yeah, I think we did. We, I, we may not have. Dis- I, I don't think we discussed it in the coffee episode. But uh, that's that, uh, true. But the artificial gravity episode, I, I think we explored that angle. 
but if I'm wrong, maybe that's worth a look in the future. Anyway, Evan continues, quote, It was about 12 years ago when I was a horrendously impoverished university student. I needed money pretty desperately and didn't have much time or willingness to work in those days. So a friend of mine in the biology department mentioned to me that there was a bulletin board for the biosci med school area of the campus which listed opportunities for students to take part in faculty members' experiments as paid subjects. I found one that offered decent pay, applied, and was immediately accepted, all without inquiring about or being informed of the nature of the experiment. The money was decent, so it seemed too good to be true. As it turns out, a professor of surgery, I assume it was Dr. Anton Jessup, if I recall correctly, had designed a machine to counter the deleterious effects of zero-G environments on the human body and was having it tested to see about trying to get it on the ISS. It was basically a pillar installed in a small empty room, fastened at floor and ceiling, and outfitted with two arms which ran horizontal to the ground. The arms could spin. One of the arms terminated in a bicycle and the other in a small platform. The idea was for one astronaut to pedal the bicycle, thus spinning the arms, while another astronaut would stand on the platform and do exercises. Both astronauts would thereby get in some crucial exercise at a measurable and adjustable level of artificial gravity. There was a monitor on the bike with a readout about the various relevant forces at play, speed, approximate number of Gs to which the exercisers were subjected, etc. Something that small, man, I would worry about Coriolis forces on that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm getting a little dizzy and nauseous just imagining this in my head. Yeah. Uh, So Evan continues, it sounds all well and good, (laughs) but for two facts, that in order to measure the effects, muscle biopsies were required before and after each workout, and that I have a propensity for horrible motion sickness. The first time I gave it a go, I made it through a few sets of rapidly spinning squats at higher than normal gravity. Then when the machine began to slow its spin, I got horribly sick and threw up everywhere. Vomit splattered on wide swaths of floor and wall, of course, as I was still spinning fairly quickly at that point. (laughs) So I went into the control group. (laughs) Uh, He says he went into the control group, quote, which did just normal squats to provide some frame of reference for the efficacy of the machine. Is that something you're supposed to do? Take somebody from your test group and then put them into your control group? Or is he just like wandering uh, like dizzily into into the, into the control group here. <laughs> oh, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't want to be unfair. That seems like something that might not be something you're supposed to do, but I don't know. Evan continues, it still wasn't a great experience, though, as the muscle biopsies were pretty rough. Since we were testing out the efficacy of squats, they had to cut into the skin of my calf, then screw a kind of small metal tube down into the muscle. It was a fun feeling, even with local anesthetic. The tube would then engage a bit of suction to get some of my muscle into it and kind of cap itself with a razor, thus trapping a small standardized amount of leg muscle inside about the size of one piece of Kix cereal. Why Kix? I don't know. It's just a standard measurement of muscle tissue. Right. You, you, you use kicks. You my, use my car gets 40 kicks to the hog's head. And <laughs> um, Evan writes, it's strange to look at one's own leg muscle. Yeah, I bet. It was much whiter than I expected, more like chicken than pork or beef. So, yeah, I would get these muscle biopsies before and after the workout every day for two weeks. If you think your legs are sore after an ordinary workout, you get the idea. At the end of two weeks, I got a check for about $450. Not sure if it was worth it. The money's long spent. 
but I still have the little regularly spaced incision scars on my leg. Makes a good story, though. To sum it up, I don't know if the machine made it to the ISS, but from what the professor was saying, it seemed like the results were looking pretty promising, at least as the experiment was finishing up. Hope you found this interesting, and thanks for your podcast. It keeps me company in my long, idle evenings. More episodes per week, please. Uh, as you're stitching up your uh, test subjects, it's probably a good idea to tell them that this looks promising. You don't want to say like, <laughs> yeah, I guess this was a wild goose chase. Uh, yeah. Thanks but, but for the thanks, leg, though. Thanks for the le- the leg muscle kernels. And thanks for the vomit samples. Yeah. Well, this I have to say this is one of – this is a, a thoroughly enjoyable bit of listener mail, but also one of the more um, – uh, kind of nauseating your <laughs> males because we had the spinning contraption, the vomiting, the, the 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 leg muscle samples. There was a lot of squeamish content. So you know, five stars. I'm gonna go to six. Best new email. Oh yeah. Okay. What's our scale? We've we've not established the scale. Is wait two. no? Uh, we we go the pitchfork scale. So I'd I'd say eight point three. Best new email. Okay. We got a lot of great emails on the way. So maybe it'll get beaten. Who knows. Uh, here's another one uh, r- related to the coffee episode, and this is just uh, an answer to some of the the sci-fi questions we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, this comes from Theodore. Theodore says, quote, I'm sitting here drinking a hot black cup of coffee listening to your most recent episode on coffee in space. I just wanted to write in and include some other books with space coffee you missed. Dune, Spice Coffee. This, of course, is a big one. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of shocked that uh, we didn't bring it up, yeah. given we've, we've done whole episodes on Dune. And I imagine we mentioned uh, uh, Spice Coffee in those episodes, but at any rate, he says, uh, quote, uh, said to be mixed with the spice melange, giving it a cinnamon flavor. It is never made clear if the coffee in question here is the same beverage we drink now or if the word has morphed to refer to other hot beverages. Hmm. That's a good point. Uh, Ring World, uh, a book I was going to write in about for the summer reading episode, features basically a replicator on board the ship that can produce coffee. I highly recommend this book for you guys, not because of the coffee, but the imaginative aliens and the artifacts left behind by ancient supergalactic civilizations. Uh, I do have to say this is a book that's long been uh, on my reading list, and I, I've, I've never picked it up, but uh, it's it's a famous work. This is one of the ones where I'm, I think we must have had at least a half dozen listener mails tell us we've got to read this one lately. Yeah. I don't know why. I, it I, must I, be good. It must be good. Yeah. I mean, it is it is a famous work. Like, uh, there's no reason for me to be – I'm not, you know, actively avoiding it. Uh, the next one is um, Artemis, and it has lunar coffee. It says that this book was written by Andy Weir writer of The Martian. Hmm. Uh, Both books are great, but Artemis has better or more interesting coffee. (laughs) In the lunar city, the primary industry is aluminum production. A waste product of that is oxygen that the city uses to breathe. However, to replicate Earth's atmosphere, uh, they would need to bring tons of nitrogen up to the moon from Earth. Too expensive. Instead, they have a pure oxygen environment with 20% of the air pressure of Earth. This lowers the boiling point of water to something like 65 degrees Celsius, meaning that all coffee comes out weak to Earthling taste. Oh, that's a bummer. And then Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, something almost but not quite entirely unlike tea. <laughs> the replicator in HHGG is unable to replicate Earth tea, and when Arthur finally gets it to work, it shuts down the computer, nearly killing everyone on the ship. You know, this is something that I feel like doesn't get explored enough. Uh, the idea of uh, cooking and preparing food and everything in space, 
We've talked about how foods and drinks don't necessarily taste the same in space because if you're in a microgravity or zero-G environment, you're often congested and stuff like that. Like it changes you. The mm -hmm. environment changes your ability to taste things. But if you are cooking in space or preparing hot beverages, it also changes the, the fundamental properties of chemical reactions. Yeah. Things happen at different temperatures. So you, you might not be able to achieve the same tastes in prepared foods even if you could taste them the same way. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's ultimately a fool's errand to uh, to, to try and create good space food. Like space food is always going to be space food. Or maybe it's, maybe it's just a different kind of thing. I mean, who's going to be the first great chef beyond Earth? Ooh, it's a great question. But there's gonna also going to be a pretty low bar to set, right? Like the first uh -huh. chef on Mars is going to be the greatest Martian chef ever. <laughs> um, what do you th what do you think's the the first restaurant beyond Earth? What is that going to be like? What kind of food will it serve? Well, I would hope it would be like a tourist pizza. I'm thinking, you know, uh -huh. where it spins because it has to spin to keep the toppings on it. So the <laughs> the like uh -huh. the outside of the torus is just the bottom of the crust. The inside of the torus is the surface of the pizza, and so the toppings are held in by uh, what's a centrifugal force. I think it's going to be one of those irritating, cutesy places that thinks it's just hilarious to put bacon in dishes where it doesn't belong. <laughs> well, we'll see. Will it be real ba bacon, though, or will it be like some sort of a, like a vat-grown uh, pig that's grown <laughs> on the ship or uh, like a Martian pig variant? So many questions. Bacon protein product. <laughs> okay, what's up next? Well, I think next we should take a short break. And when we come back, uh, we will read some listener mail related to our episode on the Trident. All right, we're back. So uh, the first uh, bit of uh, Trident email, we did this whole episode about the, about the, the Trident, uh, the, the mythical, symbolic nature of the Trident. And I believe we, we touched on at one point the idea that you don't really see you don't see a trident in nature, that a, that a trident is, uh, is this, this human construction and therefore has all of this human meaning associated with it. We had one listener, Cindy Liu, uh, write to us on Twitter, and she shared a, a, a photograph with us mm -hmm. of, uh, of a, a fossil or a reconstructed fossil. And sa she says, quote, this trilobite, Wally Serops, has a trident to pick with you. Uh, and indeed, this particular trilobite has a trident formation, a trident appendage coming out of its head, like it's a, a unicorn trilobite with a trident instead of a single horn. It's the straight-up devil. Yeah. <laughs> she says, um, and I wrote her back and said, oh, well, that, this is wonderful. I had no idea. And she says, thanks. Trilobites fascinate me. They have such a wide collection of weird and wonderful appendages. Too bad all we have now are their fossils. Or is she saying she wants to live in a world where she's completely covered in trilobites? Well, I mean— it, it sounds kind of nice. Uh, but anyway, uh, I was looking into this uh, a little bit. Like, why is this trident there? Why, why would the organism have this structure? Uh -huh. And it turns out there are a few different theories as to why it's there. We don't know for certain. Uh, one is that it's a, a means of, um, of, of, of levitating itself above the seafloor, lifting up from the seafloor, essentially mm -hmm. uh, an, you know, an appendage. Or it's some sort of a sophisticated sensory organ. Okay. Or it's a mechanism for hiding or defending. Uh, or that it's, this is just an example of uh, sexual dimorphism and it you know, somehow played, would have played a role in uh, mate selection. Yeah. Or it's uh, sexual or caste uh, polymorphism as in social insects. Hmm. So a few different possibilities there. But indeed, uh, nature doesn't give us a lot of tridents, but nature gave us at least one trident and you'll find it on a species of trilobite. That's a worthwhile trident. Yeah. All right. Now, Carney's bringing me another bit of listener mail, uh, this one on his own trident appendage. And uh, this one comes to us from Rob. 
Hey, Robert and Joe, I just listened to your episode on tridents, and not only was it a great listen, but it really got my brain grinding away on the magic of the number three. Yeah, that's part of what we talked about in the episode is like why do we uh, assign three this magical power? Rob says, quote, I have often uh, bucked uh, convention with my beliefs on two fundamental time measures. I don't think of seasons in the term of uh, spring, summer, autumn, and winter, but more of extreme transition, extreme. Uh, I also don't think of the day in terms of morning, afternoon, evening, and night, but like extreme, transition, extreme. Uh, Think of it like the infinity symbol. Uh, To the early humans, there was a cyclic pattern of time of light, a transition of light, a time of dark, a time of transition of light, a time of light, etc. Similarly, for early humans living outside of uh, equatorial areas, there was a cyclic pattern of time of warmth, a transition of warmth, a time of cold, a transition of warmth, a time of warmth, etc. Maybe that kind of perspective on cycles of the day and seasons also led to the magic attributed to three. I guess the same could also be said of lunar cycles, full moon, transition, new moon, transition, full moon, etc. Additionally, there's the riddle of the Sphinx. Uh, The answer speaks to three phases of life, infant, adult, old age. Uh, This holds true for plants and animals, too. The ancient paradigm is connected uh, to the much more modern maiden, mother, and crone aspects of the goddess in neo-paganism, which also helps keep the power of three alive. The ancient Greeks had the three fates, which were said to tell the fate of a a day's old child. Shakespeare had the three weird sisters in Macbeth, who also prophesied the fate of Macbeth. Uh, There is a clear multicultural attribution of magic and supernatural ability to the number three. Pure speculation on my part, but I think the perspective on days, seasons, life, human, plant, animal cycles, and maybe even lunar cycles that I uh, mentioned earlier played a part in this attribution. I think these are common experiences to many early cultures that early humans would want to explain and understand. Defining them in a similar way, three phases, they could all be explained with a single answer, a supernatural entity. Oh, and then there's the triangle, a very stable basic geometric shape with three corners, three equals stable. I remember back in high school, one of the cool English teachers I had told us to watch movies and plays with an eye for people standing in triangles. He said that pattern is often used to denote strength, especially if there are two people standing in close proximity to the camera and a third standing behind and slightly elevated. That showed the third person was the leader, and that role was bestowed by the two others. A variation was usually used when the people are moving. The leader is in front of the triangle, taking a leadership role, with the other two falling in behind. He used a West Side Story as an example. Not sure it holds 100% of true 100% of the time, but a fun visual exercise nonetheless. It could be way off, but it has been a fun thought exercise. Thanks for stirring the pot of my imagination. Cheers, Rob. Yeah, I think this is a bunch more examples of uh, the the seemingly um, innate magical signaling of the number three, that it seems to tell us that something important is going on. And when something important is going on, of course, something magical is going on. Yeah, I like the the point about the, the triangle structure in film. Uh, yeah. I don't remember this coming up in, in film classes I had, but I instantly think to say uh, Conan the Barbarian. Because you meet Thulsa Doom, but it's not just Thulsa Doom. Thulsa Doom's got his two uh, his two thugs there. You, got, you wouldn't have a Thulsa Doom without a Sven Ole Thorson, right? And then the other guy whose name I forget that was the football player. Who, oh. yeah, he only has one line in the whole movie, but it's the most perfect execution 
of a one-word line in a, in a film I've ever seen. What's the word? It's you. He just says you. Like he sees. Oh. And, and it, it helps. You I don't that remember that Dramatic part. music. But uh, I was thinking it would be great if the word was like carrots. <laughs> that, but that's just as hard, really. I feel, you, you know, when a character has like a whole monologue to really lay out how they feel about something. Well, Tulsa Doom's got great monologues. Yeah, he is, yeah. Tulsa Doom has just got yeah, miles of, uh, of, of, of dialogue and, and monologues to, to just lay out who his character is and what defines him. This character has just got that one word, and yet he manages to do it. So it's it's arguably a better performance. Nice job. Yeah. Anyway, you will contemplate this on the tree of woe. <laughs> Let's move on to some emails in response to our episode about the ancient aliens ideas. Oh, yes. We got some good ones on this. Yeah, a lot of good ones here. I was kind of surprised. I don't think we heard from anybody who was like, hey, I believe in ancient aliens, and I'm mad that you guys don't. Um, yeah, I was, well, you know, I guess I wasn't hoping for that, but I, I was thinking we might hear from someone who would maybe, um, you know, who'd maybe be on uh, towards that end of the spectrum as opposed mm. to the, the, the more purely skeptic, because we kind of, we, we, in, in that episode, we engaged with the idea, you know, as, as much as we could mm. while remaining skeptical about it. We talked about the way uh, Carl Sagan engaged with it. Right. The idea was that – so like the Eric Von Daniken approach is obviously – you know, that's a non-starter. It, mm-hmm. It's nonsense. But there could be an intelligent way to approach this idea and look for evidence of it. And Carl Sagan laid out some really good thoughts about that and some stuff he wrote in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, because while the, the – while a lot of ridiculous stuff has been done in the name of this hypothesis, the hypothesis itself – is is perfectly sensible. If there are aliens, then they may have been here before. Yeah, and that's there's there's nothing uh, so shameful about that sentence. What would evidence of it look like if it were to exist? Right, and that's where we and, and that also is a, is a fair discussion. But then when we look for that evidence, we just do not find it. Right, but we did find a lot of great listener response to this episode. We did. So uh, I am going to read our first one. Let's see. Let's. Let's look first at this one from Graham. Graham writes, Hi all, just now catching up on episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind and just listened to the episode on the Chariots of the Gods. The reason I have to play catch up now is that I was leading some trips of high school students for the New York Times and Nat Geo student trips. One of those trips was to Switzerland where I had a chance to take one of my students to the Jungfrau Park in Interlaken. Yes, I knew somebody out there had to have been there. I'm an astrobiologist and someone with an interest in the ancient aliens' ideas. I thought I'd share my experience in Jungfrau Park. When you arrive at the park, it has an eerie feeling of being a memorial to something dead. (laughs) While we were there, we saw only three employees and the parking lot was almost entirely empty. There was a small school group there when we arrived, but for most of our several hours in the park, it was just two of us and another pair of people. Since the turnout is so low and there are only a few employees, most of the exhibits are closed except for at two specific times each day. This meant that one employee employee and the other pair of people were with us in every exhibit as we made our way around. The exhibits were beautiful, with structures built to mimic pyramids of Egyptians and Mayans or the Vimana of ancient Sanskrit stories. Most of the exhibits have little pre-show halls where you can walk at your leisure and read about some of the artifacts from ancient peoples that Von Daniken and others think might have come from alien influences. However, most of these pre-show areas can be explored in 15 minutes or so. Each exhibit is then really just a movie theater built to resemble some facet of the ancient society in question. 
The movies are fun to watch, though mostly seem low budget and have CGI that feels like something from the late 90s. Oh, that's always – that's <laughs> the best. Each of these movies presents that some topic related to ancient people, Nazca lines, pyramids, Vimana, etc., and then presents the idea that maybe the constructions and knowledge of the ancients came from aliens. There's even a video that presents a giant alien space battle in Earth's orbit. Although the park does present the ideas as being merely possible, one thing that I took away from the park is that it feels like Von Daniken's personal shrine to himself. There are copies of his books all over the park. There are pictures of him in various places. There are even signs saying when he'll be in the park next to give a lecture, though I can't imagine a lot of people are there for such events. I can't actually see how the park even remains open. Maybe there are some other days when they do more business, but I doubt they see much more than 100 people on any given day. Cheers. Well, this is ah, direct report from the field. Amazing. (laughs) This is great. Now, you know, one might say, Graham, just because you, you know, you, you didn't see evidence for how humans are maintaining this magnificent creation. Maybe it is because uh, it is the work of aliens. <laughs> that is a great thing to point out. Yeah. How could humans alone have conceived such a wonder? <laughs> Another thing this makes me think about with all the, like, pictures of him everywhere in the books is it makes me think about your comparison to L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Yeah, I do get I, – I did get a, a strong L. Ron Hubbard uh, vibe. But I mean, still, I I am jealous that he got to go there because when I was reading about it, uh, uh, in, in uh, when we were researching that episode, I I just I really wanted to check it out for myself. You know what this actually makes me think about is how I would like to go to a place that's just take out the ancient aliens aspect and just have an ancient civilizations park. Yeah, that it's just like a, a giant. Imagine like a Disney World. But it's all recreations of civilizations of the ancient world, you know, trying to recreate what a street would look like in their culture with original type architecture, maybe re- rebuildings or recreations of the wonders that they built. Uh, th- that'd be awesome. Because they are truly wonders. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have to you don't have to see them through the, the you know, the lens of ancient alien uh, speculation to 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 give it that wonder. Like the, the pyramids are amazing. Uh, you know, the, these various other, um, you know, architectural or cultural uh, uh, creations are amazing and, and, and they are amazing just as pure human creations. And of course, you can actually visit these – the ones that still exist, you can visit them. Mm-hmm. You can't visit all of them because some of them have been destroyed or inaccessible or whatever. But yeah, I think it would be great to build a place like this that's just easier for people to get to. You no, know, we also heard from listener Kira who wrote in and she said, uh, hello there. I was listening to your Chariots of the God episode yesterday where you were discussing the name of the uh, name of the Jungfrau Park in Switzerland. Jungfrau actually means virgin in German, oh. <laughs> which added to the weirdness of that park for me, which might have been uh, a loss to other listeners due to the uh, mistranslation to young woman. That's what I guessed it might have meant. So it's, she says, uh, it is not that uncommon to name mountain peaks Jungfrau or Virgin, but calling this park the Virgin Park <laughs> made me chuckle a bit since it promotes these bizarre concepts of humankind's origins, whilst ancient aliens theory also touches upon biblical stories where the Virgin is obviously an important symbol. Huh. So I thought it would be amusing to point this out since uh, this actually backs up your arguments made at the end of the episode regarding the adaptation of religious motifs for such uh, pseudoscience alternative religion theories, although these are just my own musings about the name of the park. Keep up the good work as your voices help me get through my insomnia and university stresses, so please do not ever stop. Greeting from the Netherlands, Kira. 
We don't plan on stopping. Thanks a lot, Kira. Well, hey, while we're talking about Jungfrau Park, might as well uh, revisit our comments about Dollywood. We talked about Dollywood in that episode for some reason. I guess it just came up. In- uh, just talking about like the, the different types of parks one comes to expect in uh, the United States, I think. I think I admitted I'd never been to Dollywood, so I didn't mean to judge it harshly, but I was trying to imagine if it's a Dolly Parton-themed park, what, is it like Dolly Parton song-themed rides? So they have a Jolene roller coaster? <laughs> uh, I was confused. But Amy – enlightened us. So our listener Amy says, hi, so you guys were talking about Dollywood and implying it's not good. <laughs> I thought the same till I went with my family. It is one of the coolest tourist places ever. When we went, it was International Week. They had acts and vendors from all over the world. As part of the regular permanent park, there are many local crafters who get an excellent place to sell their crafts. They have glass blowing, wrought iron, sculpture, yarn, and sewing arts. They also have a large area of free trade vendors. Next to this, there is a bald eagle sanctuary. They have local folk musicians and regular exhibits on conservation. Dolly's childhood home is there, and it was about the size of a small hotel room for her entire large family. They use newspaper ads to decorate the walls. Sevierville, Tennessee, which is uh, basically, if you're not familiar with East Tennessee geography, it's uh, it's like right next to Pigeon Forge where Dollywood is. Sevierville uh, also, or Servierville is my uh, uh, <laughs> Canadian uh, 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 college instructors referred to it uh, <laughs> at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, um, is Sevierville is also the setting for Cormac McCarthy's uh, fantastic novel, Child of God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Uh, which I do not think is reflected at all in the Dollywood attractions. I don't think they have Child of God. They don't have uh, a land. Child of God ride? No. <laughs> the, the scene where he goes to get the axe reforged. Do you remember right. that one? Oh, uh, no, I don't. Re- I don't remember that scene. I think I was more traumatized by other scenes in that book. Oh no, it, th- that's a great scene. It, like the murderer goes to get his axe worked on at a forge somewhere, and the the smith or the forge worker, whoever the guy is, he like tells him everything he's doing as he does it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, he's like, "Think you could do that?" And then the guy goes, "Do what?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, okay. It does ring a bell. It does ring a bell. But anyway, sorry, picking up. She just uh, – Amy continues to talk about how Sevierville uh, in Tennessee, which is in that area, was very poor. Uh, and the Dolly Parton put the park there and employed a lot of people, created a bustling commercial area, she says. Quote, I think you should have an episode on one of your sister podcasts about it and her. She does many good works and is an especially good friend to the drag queens who portray her. Goes to show you can't judge a theme park by – I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Amy. I, I did not in any way mean to impugn Dolly Parton. I, I don't know a whole lot about her, but from what I know, I think Dolly Parton's great. Oh uh, yeah, I agree. I did not. I certainly did not mean to imply that uh, Dollywood was not good. <laughs> I have heard nothing but great things about it from uh, family members who have gone there, mm-hmm. and uh, and I am aware that that Dolly Parton has uh, has done a lot of good work in that area. Yeah, I didn't know she did anything with uh, like eagle conservation and all that. Uh, I wasn't familiar with that. I knew about like the sort of the job creation in the Sevierville uh, Pigeon Forge area, but uh, but that was about the extent of it. Well, yeah, good for Dolly. You know, I don't know if she ever would have predicted that people would be out there having a conversation about her in a podcast with reference to a park in Switzerland about ancient aliens. But <laughs> probably not. But but great for Dolly. All right, here's another one from uh, that has to do with our, our ancient aliens chariot of gods episode. Uh, this one's from Mike. Mike says. Hey, guys, listening to your recent discussion regarding ancient alien speculation and its appearance in science fiction, I was struck by a couple notable, uh, to me, omissions. Uh, in, the, in the season two episode of the original Star Trek series, Who Mourns for uh, Adonais, 
I won't summarize it here other than to say that it is a it is definitely a relevant example with Kirk at one point observing that creatures such as he could have visited Earth and formed the basis of classical Greek mythology. Mm. The episode has a thoughtful yet playful take on the idea overlapping most uh, with the Carl Sagan school of thought on the topic. Star Trek uh, touches on the concept again in the Next Generation episode, The Chase. This time, the speculation is presented in a reversal at the end. No guilt for spoilers here. The episode is not that strong and conforms more to the species of ancient alien speculation we saw in Prometheus. I don't know uh, that I could claim either of these as the greatest examples of the genre, but they were both mainstream programs, and the original series episode would have definitely left the 1967 viewer with something to think about. Love the show. In my honest opinion, best pod on the web. Keep it up, Mike. That's sweet. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I appreciated this. You know, I've, um, I've never really watched classic Trek. I don't know. I just uh, I have a certain aversion to it. I don't know. I just can't get into <laughs> it. Uh, I didn't watch it when I was, you know, young enough or whatever. But, but I watched the, the heck out of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Mm-hmm. And I do find, like now that he mentions I do fondly remember the Chase episode. And I do remember it feeling really amazing at the time when I was watching it in like early junior high or something. And that was probably my first encounter with the concept of ancient aliens in a, like a purely fictional work as opposed to the, you know, sort of the pseudoscience of In Search Of, uh, which I think I, I referenced in that episode. Well, speaking of that kind of amazement, I should mention just one last listener mail we got uh, about ancient aliens from our listener Alexandra, who uh, she she said that when she found out we were doing an episode about chariots of the gods, she – Lost her mind a bit. And uh, she said, uh, quote, that was one of those self-discovery, coming-of-age, outlandish ideas books that I found fascinating in college. You know when your personal reading list includes books like Celestine Prophecy and Ishmael? I love Ishmael, by the way. I don't know it. Oh, it's a book by Daniel Quinn. It's uh, essentially a a conversation between a human and a, a talking gorilla. Uh, covering, uh, you know, a lot of topics about human nature and conservation, et cetera. It's, huh. uh, it, uh, I, I recommend it. I recommend Ishmael. That sounds worth checking out. But she continues, while you all were describing the passage about Ezekiel's account of angels in the Bible, an absolute yen came over me to hear a follow-up to this podcast on the book Food of the Gods. Ah. It fits the theme. Hear me out. This book explains the idea of the forbidden fruit of the Western Adam and Eve narrative as being the magic mushroom. That when they ate the fruit, quote, and their eyes were opened and they saw the shame in their nakedness, a.k.a. they developed consciousness. This narrative explains the concept that psychedelics could have developed our concept of God because we projected a creator through hallucinations in our own image. It also has some other noteworthy concepts regarding the development of language, yada, yada. Anyway, I'd love to hear your view on this book. It could get meta real quick. Thanks, guys. I love your show. Well, we've actually been talking about doing an episode on Food of the Gods by Terrence McKenna. Yeah, it's one of those that I uh, judged from a distance. I have not yet been able to ascertain whether it's just a bunch of pseudoscience or whether there's some good stuff in it. Uh, so it might be worth a look. Figure it out. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to looking at it more closely. I picked up a copy of it. I haven't started reading it yet, but uh, I believe it was uh, – I think I read some, some commentary from uh, – I believe it was John Horgan – who uh, who had some nice things to say about food of the gods and used it as a he he was making the argument uh, uh, that uh, that this is an example of like the the serious Terence McKenna or, or at least the, the the Terence McKenna that was uh, that that wanted to uh, you know actually put on his academic's hat mm-hmm. as opposed to his um, 
shaman uh, hat. Shaman hat. Yeah. <laughs> Which are both worthy hats. We need scientists and we need shamans, um, you know. Uh, but you shouldn't confuse the two. Yeah, we should not confuse the two. So look for uh, possibly look for an episode on that in the future. We're gonna have to, we're gonna look clo- we'll look at it and then uh, proceed from there if if, uh, if it looks like a good topic. Totally. Thanks, Alexandra. So I think we should take a look at maybe a few short ones before we take another break. How about this one from Heidi? I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, this was like uh, some anthropology coming from the world of retail. Okay. So Heidi says. Hey, guys, I've been in retail for all of my working life and have noticed something pretty interesting. Imagine a situation where two of the exact same items are sitting next to each other on a shelf. This happens a lot, especially with items that sell well. I've noticed that in an overwhelming number of cases, people choose the item on the left over the item on the right, Hmm. despite those being the same item. I wonder if the reason for this is that we as Americans read and write starting on the left side of the paper. And if that's the case, is it different in other countries where they start on the right side of the paper? Love your work. Keep it up. Huh. That is, first of all, an interesting observation that I've never made. Yeah. And secondly, I think that is that sounds like a perfectly logical hypothesis for what's going on there. Yeah, that that's worth investigating. I wonder if anybody's ever looked in this into this scientifically. I mean, if that is a real phenomenon, which I I trust your experience. It sounds like that very well could be. Here's a a variation I wonder about. Robert, do you find yourself not wanting to pick the first item displayed on the shelf, but rather wanting to reach behind it to take the second or third of the same item from the shelf at the grocery store? Oh, yes, uh, for two reasons, because the first one has probably been handled, uh-huh. and I, I want something that's handled less even if it's in packaging for some reason. And then also there's this perhaps wife's tale. I don't know if this is true, but I somebody at some point told me, that the fresher items are in the back because they want you, like if it's, you know, some sort of produce, because mm-hmm. they want to sell off the older items, which are up front. Again, that this may be completely, uh, you know, it's just a complete wives' tale for all I know. Well, in my experience, that is absolutely true. I've worked in grocery stores. Okay. Yeah, so – or not plural. I have worked in a grocery store. Uh, when I worked in grocery store, I did grocery stocking like dairy and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we absolutely tried to order the items so that the freshest ones were in the back and the oldest ones were in the front because the oldest ones are expiring and you want to get them out the door. But, of course, people wise up to that so they start digging through and messing up all your stacks. Ah. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a, it's a foul game. <laughs> it's a <laughs> – it's a real knife in the ribs when you go shopping for dairy. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Heidi. That, that's interesting, and maybe we'll return to that in the future. All right, here's one. Uh, this is from uh, this is a Facebook message that we've received from Tom. Hey, guys, I just listened to your two-part episode regarding your summer reading list. I think it was Robert who brought up Soma, the video game, and questioned whether or not the game drew any inspiration from Starfish by Peter Watts. I think that was actually me, but— oh, okay. Uh, so Tom <laughs> continues, I recently listened to an interview with uh, Frictional Games developer Thomas Grip, who cited Peter Watts as one of his biggest inspirations for their games after Lovecraft. Oh. Pretty cool. Keep up the great work, Tom. Oh, what do you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, like I say, it makes sense when you're when, – when you play Soma, which again is just a fabulous game. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I mean, you do see a lot of uh, starfish DNA in there. Definitely – the most philosophically interesting video game I have played. And with great undersea environments. So that that's the yeah. that's the starfish thing. The star well, the undersea environments and the the creepy nihilism horror. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, one more. Uh, in our summer reading episode, we had a brief discussion about the idea of the word soul, which is a word that I think is in a lot of ways really linguistically valuable. It's like a really powerful, good word, but it also has all this supernatural baggage attached to it. And I was wondering if the word could be rehabilitated for something that doesn't have any supernatural meanings or if there's a good alternative word that's as powerful as soul is but but doesn't mean like something ghostly or anything mm -hmm. like that. Anyway, our listener Vasilis got in touch to say, how about the word sihi or psyche? It's oh. free of religious connotations, also happens to be the Greek word for soul now and 3,000 years ago. Oh, and its science is, of course, psychology. Ah, well, that's pretty good, psyche, psyche. Uh, it also makes me think of Dungeons and Dragons and psychic damage that can be inflicted. So, How do you get the, psychic damage? Oh, you know, if, uh, you know, various uh, spells and effects or, you know, gazing into a demon lord's eyes too long, that sort of thing. They'll just snap you. Mind flares messing with you. There are a whole host of ways you can get some psychic damage. <laughs> let's do one more from Michelle and then let's take a break. Michelle also writes about our summer reading episodes. She says, hello, I've enjoyed your podcast for many years from way back in the Julie days. I wanted to let you know your summer reading episode cracked me up and solved an ongoing debate between my parents. My parents have a beach house in a small town on the central coast of California called Cambria, just down the highway from Hearst Castle, which is worth a visit if you ever make it out to this coast. When I was listening to the intro to the first episode, all about the Tom Clancy books at beach houses, I thought, how do they know? <laughs> oh, they've been to my parents' house. My parents have two large built-in bookcases in their beach house, one whole shelf of which is filled entirely with Clancy novels. I went up this weekend for a family reunion. My dad asked if I listened to your podcast and started telling me about the episode. We just stood there looking at the bookshelf and laughing. He now feels very self-conscious about his reading choices, but finally realized that he doesn't actually plan to ever reread them and is willing to finally give in to my mom, who's been bugging him to get rid of them for years. So thank you for much entertainment and information and for the extra two feet of room on the bookshelf, I guess I'll just have to go buy more books. <laughs> oh, well, now I feel bad. I did not at all mean to make you or your dad feel bad about Tom Clancy books. I mean, read what you want to read. Yeah, That's yeah. No no Clancy shaming here. I, I read uh, – well, first of all, my dad read a lot of them uh, and I remember uh, like leafing through them. He had a bunch of like old spy novels and, and, and read a, he read a lot of other stuff too. Uh, but um, – I read, I think, Cardinal and the Kremlin. I think that was oh, the Clancy yeah. book I read. And it, I remember it does have a very, like, creepy scene towards the beginning where uh, a, a spy has been put in this, uh, uh, this state of sensory deprivation, like in a tank and a closed suit, like kind of the original, like, dark arts John C. Lilly mm -hmm. uh, version of sensory deprivation. Uh, so, I mean, th yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of good stuff in those books, uh, I'm, uh, I'm sure, beyond that. So, uh, yeah. Read what uh, what entertains you, what makes you happy. Absolutely. The, it is it is not at all our mission to make people feel bad about their reading pleasures. You know, narrative is a sacred retreat and you make that retreat alone. So, you know, it's not up to us to tell you where you should go. But we will tell you this. Uh, don't go away because we're going to be right back after one more ad break and we'll read some more listener mails. All right. All right, we're back. Well, what does Carney have for us next here, Joe? Well, here's one that came in with reference to our episode about the illusory truth effect. I thought this was interesting. This comes from Chris, and Chris says, Hi, Rob and Joe. When I was around four years old, we visited a fair, and my parents took a photo of me holding a monkey. 
I have a very vivid memory of the monkey biting me on the hand and remember the handler taking the monkey off of me. I'm 36 years old now and still remember this event happening and my parents still have the photo of me and the monkey. The thing is, the monkey never actually bit me. Apparently, while I was holding the monkey, I was so scared that it would bite me that my parents quickly took the photo and dragged me away to do something else. Every time I saw this photo as a child, I would say that the monkey bit me and my parents would always try and correct me. I knew they were wrong as I distinctly remember the bite, whereas my parents knew I was wrong as they were the ones who took the picture. It seems the fear of the bite as a child caused me to believe it actually did happen, and the repetition by myself of this lie instilled a false memory into my brain. It's bizarre how how over 30 years later I can still remember this false event happening, even though as an adult I've come to accept the fact it never actually did. Weird, huh? Yeah, Chris, that, that's that's fascinating, and I think that is absolutely in line with what the research tells us about what our brains are capable of. You, you I mean we we create false memories like this all the time? Maybe not always as vivid as that one, but uh, tons of the stuff you remember doing in your life, you almost definitely didn't do. Yeah, and childhood can be very confusing too about it uh, when it comes to this because uh, you know, as, as we've discussed, as we kind of explored here, you have memories kind of faint memories at times about what happened, and then you have stories that are told about what happened. And uh, between the two is, you know, you you have this, uh, you, you have what's stored in your head. But anyway, Chris, thanks for sharing. That That is interesting. Uh, here's a quick one that came to us from uh, from Diane. Uh, and uh, she says, uh, hi, Joe and Robert. I'm a huge fan and love your podcast. I thought I'd send you a pic of what I found while looking through my husband's latest edition of the British science magazine, New Scientist, in the culture section. The articles are mostly over my um, artistic head, and there's always something to glean. Keep up the fantastic work, Diane. And she sent us a picture where our podcast was mentioned in the pages of the British New Scientist magazine. Oh, thanks, New Scientist. Yeah, and and thanks, Diane, because this is one of those cases where, you know, some of you might, if you see something like this, you might think, oh, well, they probably let Robert and Joe know that they were going to do this. No. Or somebody else <laughs> told us. No, that Diane is the only person who's brought this to our attention. So we appreciate uh, you guys looking out for us like that. Okay, this next one comes to us from Atta. Atta is also writing about uh, illusory truth. Atta writes, Hi, greetings from Helsinki, Finland, from a big fan of your show. I was listening to your latest episode, Illusory Truth Part 1, where in the beginning you mentioned the study about scientific knowledge of the American public and how people had a poor understanding of boiling water physics, but a better understanding about the use of uranium. This brought one case of the illusory truth to my mind, popular misconceptions about nuclear power. Working both as a researcher and local politician with climate and energy issues, I'd say misconceptions about nuclear energy are among the most popular and most harmful. Nuclear energy is widely thought as horrible for the environment and dangerous for people. Yet when compared to other energy sources and taking into account the scale of energy produced, this is simply not true. Popular, if not so widely spread, are also even more weird misconceptions, such as that nuclear power plants could blow up like a nuclear explosion or that they emit nuclear radiation continuously in their environment. I suppose these misconceptions result from the constant exposure to these ideas in popular culture and also from the deliberate fear-mongering by some organizations, issues you also discussed in the episode. While nuclear power is by no means without challenges, it is a tried-and-true, scalable, low-emission technology without which our efforts to combat climate change and loss of biodiversity become greatly more difficult, if possible at all. 
In my work, it is frustrating to correct the widely spread misconceptions over and over again. Understanding the mechanisms of how such misconceptions are created and spread, however, makes it easier to fight ignorance with scientific knowledge. So thank you for discussing this interesting topic. Looking forward to more in part two. Thanks again for your great podcast. Well, thank you, Atta, and I hope part two is useful for you. I got to say, there there are true challenges uh, about – what to do about nuclear power and in terms of, say, making sure that facilities are secure and especially trying to figure out what to do with leftover high-level waste and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But but I agree with you. I mean, nuclear power has a lot of great advantages too, especially as a, as a low-emission alternative to fossil fuel-based energy. Yeah, this might be something we might want to come back and, and revisit for an episode in the future. All right, here's one from uh, Nadine uh, responding to our Proteus Effect episode. Hi there. I'm a bit late to this party. That's all right. The party (laughs) is always open. Um, She says, but I uh, just listened today to the episode discussing the Proteus effect. As part of the enormously fascinating discussion, you touch on the idea of RPGs, specifically D&D characters, and how noticeably or not a player may emulate the character outside of the game's context. In particular, my interest was piqued by the discussion of whether or not one might deliberately make use of the Proteus effect to consciously make changes to one's own personality based on those characters. I find this intriguing for a number of reasons, not least of which is that I've previously had similar conversations. We didn't specifically refer to Proteus Effect, of course, not being aware of it at the time, but there are significant parallels. For context, I play tabletop RPGs uh, which have been modified for use in an online text-based platform. Old school nerds will probably know what I'm talking about. It's affectionately known as uh, mushing. That's uh, M-U-S-H and then I-N-G, uh, M-U-S-H, standing for Multi-User Shared Hallucination. In this setting, I have played a minor multitude of character types and personalities. This includes villains, by the way. As a writer, I find them fascinating, and because mushing is text-based, playing them serves as an excellent exercise in characterization. (laughs) More to the point, a couple of these characters have been stronger and more well-rounded than others. Their personalities were nuanced and clearly developed, with distinctly defined characteristics, and through them I was able to more completely immerse myself in the role-play experience. It was thoroughly enjoyable... And in the aftermath of that experience, outside of the context of the game, I discovered something unexpected. I find myself I found myself leaning into some of these characters quite heavily to borrow traits that were quite well de- developed in them, but which I felt a bit lacking in myself. For example, one of my favorite characters possessed an inflappable sense of self-confidence, which was admittedly more than a little bit uh, wish fulfillment on my part. Since playing her, I have frequently, deliberately put myself back into the mindset I occupied while in character in the game in order to assume that quality for a while, for job interviews or difficult conversations, etc. Any situation in which I feel a little out of my depth and would like to borrow some confidence is fair game. I suppose, in a way, it's wearing the character like a mask. In talking to other players in this hobby, I'm certainly not alone in that tendency. Phrases like, Alice is very much in my head today, or... OMG, Steven is so mad at you right now. I'm in response to something that the character would not have appreciated. Are fairly common uh, parlance among my particular playgroup, and I've observed it in the wider hobby population as well. I don't know how well this experience fits into the overall framework of the Proteus effect as defined by various studies, but it seemed at least peripherally related enough that I felt I should share it. I adore the podcast. I came to it late, but I'm catching up, and every episode feeds my brain and piques my my curiosity. I'm grateful for the amazing content. It's engaging and insightful, and it's soul food for a polymath like me. Looking impatiently forward to the next episode. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing what you do, Nadine. 
Well, thanks, Nadine. This is not the only email we've gotten like this. We've heard from multiple people who talk about the idea of um, of using some form of role playing outside the confines of the game to change the way they live their life, essentially to get in character to do things. And yeah, I wonder about that. I mean, I wonder about how I mean, I know there are like role playing forms of therapy, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're like uh I don't know all that much about them. But I wonder to what extent people get kind of literal and deep with that, like going to role-playing game forms of therapy, where like if you lack confidence, they will give you a character to play. I think I've come across some examples of of this being used um at least in some therapy environments where they're essentially using Dungeons and Dragons or some uh, you know, boiled down version of uh of role playing, tabletop role playing. Mm-hmm. Now Nadine, I know you asked how that fits with the original Proteus effect. And I think it seems like a kind of elastic concept now because originally it was referring specifically to physical avatars. Mm -hmm. It was like if you play as a character having certain physical attributes. Um, But I think, yeah, you you can definitely expand the idea to at least a version of itself that is more all-encompassing about playing characters in simulated environments and how those qualities come back to the person playing the character. Uh, I wonder about that. I mean, it. I think I, I feel like part of the problem here is that people have different levels of tolerance for situations like role playing. Like, you know, Robert, you probably don't have this because you actually do play D anD D. But I know a lot of adults would probably be like, "Oh, that's silly." You know, I I'd be too embarrassed to do something like that. But it seems like something that's worth giving a try, even if you feel like it might be embarrassing or like you don't know how to do it. Uh, I, I bet it's worth checking out for most people who feel some kind of character-based inadequacy or like there's something that you want to do but can't. Yeah. I mean to, to to tie into another episode, I feel like this is one of the great appeals of Werewolf, mm-hmm. which which if – depending on how you play it, can incorporate at least some mild role-playing elements or, or you know, or, or you can get a little more robust with it. But it does have players uh, engaging in these extremes – of uh, human behavior that you don't necessarily get to you know employ on a regular basis, namely um, actively deceiving your friends and or family, or <laughs> um, persecuting your friends and family, um, and uh, you know ordering their execution for lycanthropy. Uh, but, you know all these sort of uh, you know extreme modes of uh, of human social behavior. Yeah, except is it good to practice lying? I don't know. Uh, well, good. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if good is the the word. I don't know. That just sounds like werewolf talk there, Joe. (laughs) Is it good to practice persecuting? Yes. (laughs) Or maybe it's an outlet for persecution. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's it's something humans are obviously good at. And if you're going to do it, I would prefer it be the uh, be fictional werewolves within a, uh, you know, a parlor game. Uh, They should be the ones to suffer. Yes. Swing your silver sword at a werewolf, not at somebody who made you mad on the Internet. Right. All right, so there you have it, another installment of Listener Mail. Uh, there were still a few great ones that we didn't get to that we had lined up. Uh, maybe we'll get to those uh, next month or so when we do another Listener Mail installment. And certainly uh, feel free to write in with new comments about new episodes, new comments about old episodes, new revelations, etc. We'd love to hear from all of you. It's true. We really do love hearing from you. And uh, so uh, as always, we apologize that we can't 
respond to or read out every great message we get, but we, we really do appreciate them, so keep them coming. That's right. And in the meantime, you can check out everything we do at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. There's also a store button up there. That's a cool way to support the show. You like our uh, our revamped logo? Get it on a mug. Get it on a sticker. Get a whole bunch of stickers and, and just tag things all over your city. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, and if you want a cheaper, like the the, 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 the the economy version of supporting the show, as in, in addition to downloading us, you can also rate and review us wherever you get the podcast. Big thanks, as always to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you want to get in touch with us to give us feedback on this episode or any other, to share ideas you've had, to name a topic you might like us to cover in the future, to perhaps get an email featured on a future listener mail episode, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.